Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. It takes a rare individual who becomes deeply and personally familiar with something that is wrong and then dedicates her life to righting that wrong. That person is our special guest today. Catherine Perez-Shagdam is a French journalist, political analyst, and commentator. She specializes in West Asian and Islamic affairs. Catherine is a former consultant for UNSC on Yemen, and she's an expert on Islamic terrorism, radicalization, and anti-Semitism. Raised in a secular Jewish family in France, Catherine found herself at the very heart of the Islamic world following her marriage to a Muslim from Yemen. Her experience in the Middle East and subsequent work as a political analyst gave her a very particular, if not a rare, viewpoint, especially in how one can lose one's sense of identity when confronting with systemic anti-Semitism. Determined to share her experience and perspective on those issues which unfortunately plague us, specifically Islamic radicalism, terror, and anti-Semitism, Catherine also will speak of a world which often sits out of our reach for a lack of access. Welcome, Catherine, to The Definitive Wrap. Thank you so much for having me. My first question will be something you had asked in one of your extremely well-written writings just two weeks ago. You wrote, how amazing would it be for Iran's next constitution to enshrine the rejection of anti-Semitism to become the first country to make such a stance? Mm. So my question is, is such a thing even possible? Do you know what? It's just it's interesting that you bring this up because um, I've been on Clubhouse for about two, about two, three months now, because and only because um, there was a lot of Iranians who wanted to, uh, you know, to speak to me. And it's pretty much the only social media that they have access to that allows, you know, that kind of uh, informal chat and allow them to maintain some degree of um, anonymity, because obviously the regime would not allow them to have access to, you know, to the outside world without any censorship. Um, and, you know, I realized that there was a massive gap in between what the regime is saying um, and how Iranians actually feel when they're allowed to express, you know, themselves uh, without any fear of censorship or, you know, repercussion for their family or their, you know, their own lives. Um, and, to, you know, I have to admit, even though I did travel to Iran and I met all kind of different people, I really felt that, you know, anti-Semitism was quite rife you know, amongst Iranians, you know, that was my belief. Um, and then I was, you know, confronted to people on Clubhouse, you know, that were actually, you know, telling me that it, it was it wasn't true. And that the reason why, you know, while in Iran, people were still being quite anti-Semitic is that 70 percent of Iranians receive their salaries from the government one way or the other. And so they don't have the freedom um, you know, or the space to actually, you know, tell the world exactly how they feel. And that clubhouse is a safe space for them. So now they can speak out. Um, and then I got involved, you know, I made a few friends actually who are involved in the opposition parties. 
Um, so they want to fight the regime. Um, and we had this discussion around, you know, they would keep telling me, you know, we need Israel to come and help us. We need to do this. We need to do that. Um, and I tried to explain to them that it's not so much what Israel can do for them, but what is it that they can do for themselves? And also, also, um, that they need to they need to still be held accountable. And I did not mean this in a negative or judgmental way, that they needed to be held accountable for the kind of language coming out of Iran. Um, because obviously from an Israeli or even a Jewish perspective, it's very difficult for anyone you know, to say, you know, yes, I believe you, let's forget everything that has happened in the past and let's move on. Um, I do believe that accountability is very important, even if people don't feel that they're responsible for the situation that they kind of inherited. Um, and so we had a discussion around, you know, what is it that we could do? And I was saying that in my mind, the, the, the best token of friendship and something that I feel should be, um, you know, a broader discussion with other nations around the world, because anti-Semitism is something that is so profoundly anti-democratic uh, for so many different reasons. Um, that I think making a clear stance against anti-Semitism would actually allow to cut the, you know, to 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 cut off uh, what feeds racism in general, uh, and and you know intolerance as as a broader term. And so I was saying, look, you know, we had the Declaration of Human Rights, you know, we had, um, of course, the you know the the United States Constitution, that is a beautiful testament to you know democratic values and aspirations. And I was thinking. What about we use a constitution to actually enshrine, you know, um, this fight and stand against anti-Semitism and make it unlawful, you know, on that level? Right. Um, and this is something that actually caught on. So we had a whole discussion on Clubhouse around this idea. Now, everybody agreed, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I was thinking this is something that really kind of spoke to me and I really want to push it because I think... We talk about the United Nations. We talk about, you know, um, fighting anti-Semitism in various countries in the West and across the world. You know, but what about actually holding governments accountable, you know, for what is it that they say in terms of their efforts to, you know, prevent and fight against anti-Semitism? Put their money where their mouth is and actually right. transform their constitution and make a real stance against fascism, terror, you know, in such a way that you, you would be sending such a clear message to all those groups who thrive on anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism, by the way, because let's not, let's not forget that anti-Zionism is a euphemism for anti-Semitism right. and, and actually, right. you know, make it, enshrine it into what is it that makes a pillar of a democratic, you know, um, or democracies. Um, so, yeah, so I was thinking, I'm just going to put it out there on Twitter and see what people say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you. Your background is fascinating. You were born to Jewish parents. Um, in fact, from what I understand, um, your maternal grandfather fought Nazis during the Nazi occupation in France. He did. And, I'm, yeah. I'm actually really, uh, uh, you know, my grandfather was, uh, has had a huge influence on my life. Um, he was, and I, I think that this is something that is not discussed enough. Um, and he wasn't the only one, by the way, to, you know, to join the resistance. About 20%, which is a huge number, um, of all resistance fighters in France were actually Jews. So that kind of tells you, um, because there's also a discussion going on right now about, you know, what is it that Jews did during, um, you know, the, um, the Holocaust in terms of fighting back. Um, and I think that, you know, this is how. I mean, it's not the only way, 
Um, but this is one of the ways that people, you know, kind of contributed to uh, defeating Nazism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important. So, yeah, he was, you know, as soon as soon as um, the Nazi occupied France, he joined in and um, dedicated his life to fighting fascism in all, yeah. all yeah. its, you know, shapes. And I understand that your paternal grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. Yes, he's he was sent to... I don't like to use the word and only because um, I think that automatically people, you know, think Auschwitz um, and the death camps. He wasn't sent in the death camps. He he was in Tunisia mm-hmm. um, and Tunisia was, you know, under French mandate at the time right. uh, under the Vichy government that was collaborating with Nazi Germany. And um, the German actually landed in um, in Tunisia for a little bit and occupied Tunisia and so they went about kind of replicating the policy that they had you know across Europe and then right. build camps and send people but they were more kind of internment camps it wasn't fun it was terrible people died nice. um some members of my family died um but I don't want to I don't want to make a parallel or you know in between the suffering that people endured in in Auschwitz and other places um and what my family had to go through because you know they were the lucky ones you know, in, in their hardship, they were the lucky ones because they, um, they survived it. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't as terrible as, you know, it could have been. So I, I think it's important because I don't want to take away from the pain. You're not that taking people... away, nothing undermines the suffering that he went through. I, I know, but it's just, I, you know, when you say survivor, I know where people minds go and I don't want to, I don't want people to feel that I'm taking away from that because it's not the case. Um, you know, but it's important to talk about the fact that in North Africa, um, there were internment camps and people died and, and Jews were, you know, um, treated horribly, really harshly. Um, and for some reason, it kind of escaped the narrative when we talk about, you know, the Shoah. Um, people automatically think Eastern, you know, Eastern Europe, forgetting that millions of people faced, um, you know, uh, oppression, you know, in other, you know, other places in the world. And it's, uh, it needs to be talked about and it needs to be said. Right. And then you later married, I believe you met in college, um, a Muslim who had con- yeah, and converted to Islam. You yeah. converted to Islam and you also published books and many articles about Shia Islam. How did, did you later come to detest Islam? Um, do you know, it's, it's, it's complicated because, look, when I, when I got to, to the UK and, you know, uh, went to university, I was very secular. So religion and especially, you know, being I, I think that being French, being raised in France, you have kind of really weird relationship to religion in general. Um, in what way? How is uh, the relationship to religion? It's a very secular. You know, we have this laicity, the concept of laicity, whereby the religious never, ever interferes with the, you know, the public space. Mm-hmm. But it's not something even when people identified as Christian, Jews, Muslim, Buddhist or whatever in France back then. Right. Uh, it really meant nothing. It, it, it was, you know, people, for example, if you were Christian, you would do Christmas and that's about it. But you, there was no going to church. There was no um, a true, I would say, understanding of the divine or, you know, um, people were not living their faith, you know, as, as a day to day thing. It was more like an identity type of mm-hmm. thing. But it was kind of like never talked about. Um, it, it wasn't something that people discussed very much. So, you know, when when I met my now ex-husband uh, and he told me, oh, I'm Muslim, my mind went automatically to some of the people that I grew up with, went to school with, who were Muslim, maybe once a year when it was Ramadan and they used to say, oh, it's Ramadan. And that was it. So I was thinking, OK, so it's, it's just a thing. But really, that it doesn't mean anything. There's no practice. There's no like real belief behind it. 
Uh-huh. And boy, oh boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. I was what did, very young. What did you learn? What did, what did you learn? In, in oh, I learned married? very quickly. I learned very quickly that Islam was kind of a thing, um, you know, for him. But also look, in France, we have Muslim from North Africa and they, they have been very westernized. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of Islam was this, the, the Western version um, that we had back then in France. Now it's very different. People right. have been radicalized. Um, and so it was the first time, you know, in my entire life that I was confronted from someone from Arabia. So, you know, the, the Arabic Peninsula, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. Um, so for me, it was, a, it was a massive culture shock because I then realized that, oh, hold on a second. Islam is actually real for you uh, in terms of everything that it preaches and, you know, that the, the demands that it makes on your life. And initially, when he asked me to, to convert to Islam, it was more discussion along the line. You know, this is something that my family would like you to do. Uh, you don't have to believe in it. It's just a thing that we do. It's oh, kind I of, see. you know, it's it was custom. more it was more ceremonial. Yes. So I went along with it because, again, I had no understanding of what that meant. Right. Um, and then I found myself caught, I would say, in a world and a society that suffocated me. Um, but it's done in such a way, it's so progressive that you don't always realize it. Um, and they do it with a smile and they keep telling you along the way that, oh, you know, we have nothing against the Jews. We have nothing against the Jews, but, hmm. and you know, when you're young and you're kind of cut out from your family and you don't know a lot of people and suddenly everything that you know, you know, is Muslim. Um, it's very difficult to kind of, find the the strength to kind of step out mm-hmm. um especially when suddenly you, you know you get pregnant you have a son and then you have a daughter sure, and i'm sure. like sure. you know and yeah. i really look i realized early on that i had made a massive mistake but i just didn't know how to get out of it uh, mm-hmm. and i'm quite stubborn and i was raised in a way that a little bit i think i was a bit traditional in the sense that in my mind if you were you know if you get married you stay married right um, and so I tried to make it work. Very traditionally. Really you were raised very traditionally yeah, in that you know, my grandfather, way. you know, I, I, I never really dated. So, um, um, you know, my grandfather used to tell me, like, you know, when you find someone that you like, you date and then you marry. Right. Um, and I had this, like, I had, you know, I had this voice stuck in my head saying, like, you know, you're going to have to make it work. Because make it work, you, yeah. may, you may have Against made a Against all odds, got to make now. it work. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried. I really did. Um, for the sake of my children. Yeah. And it, it became intolerable. Um, you know, and, and looking back, I mean, I actually can't believe that I, I tolerated, you know, some of the things that, that were said and done, um, but I did for some reason. And something happens to a person, I think, when you systematically being bullied out of your identity, yes. um, is that you end up hating the very thing that makes you, you, um, and, because there was so much and you, you trauma know, bonded but, and you also yeah. trauma bonded yeah, yeah. as well but you don't understand it when you're living it which is no, very it's a course. very strange it's very strange so yeah. you know i started to I, in my mind i internalized you know this hatred that was projected onto me but they were telling me it's not you it's the jewish community it's, it's israel um and i ended up hating israel because in my mind israel was the source of my suffering because of Israel, yeah, and because of who I was, you know, I was being bullied. And when I say bullied, I mean viciously bullied um, every day, every day, every day, every day. Oh and which, no, it's, do you know what? I, I, it was difficult, but I tell you something. 
Um, it gives me such an armor when it comes to anti-Semitism. So when people now come at me, you know, on social media or in real life, um, if I do debates on TV, whatever it is, um, and they come at me and tell me, oh, you know, whatever it is that they say, criticism and or threats, um, I actually laugh it off because I'm like, look, I've heard everything. There is nothing that you could come up with that will shock me, hurt me. And I've learned to dissociate from your words because they mean nothing to me. Um, and I want to, I want to, it kind of became, I think my superpower when it comes to anti-Semitism because it doesn't affect me anymore. Um, and I just, I, and I wish that people would learn to do this more and to actually, you know, use this hatred that they're throwing at us and use it to, to, to make light out of it. Um, and actually tell them no, but I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to apologize that kind of behavior. We should stand up to it. Um, but at the same time, we have to do a lot better than what they do. You know, hate doesn't get, doesn't, we should answer through hate. We should do a lot better and we can, we have done and we're doing it. Um, and I think that's the only way forward, quite frankly. But I very, very much regret um, the price I had to pay, you know, to learn those lessons. Because it's, um, it wasn't a proud moment in my life. You know, the, the thing that I said in, and done, um, I regret profoundly, um, but they were part of my journey. So I have to embrace them and accept them. God bless you. Catherine, what have you learned about the way Iran wants to portray themselves to the world in your interviews with uh, their political figures? Oh, good Lord. Um, I think, look, I've, I've walked, I've walked the, you know, the streets of Tehran and, and Iran, and I would say that this regime, for me, um, is the embodiment, the embodiment of evil, truly. Um, those people want to annihilate. And, when, and I say this, you know, when they say death to Israel, death to America, they're talking about the Jews in general. And they have said it over and over again. But for some reason, the world is not listening when they're saying it. Um, they want to see, you know, Judaism and the Jews gone. And the reason why I make the distinction is because I've had countless conversations with, you know, high-ranking clerics, we're talking yes. Ayatollahs, um, telling me they have a profound, profound hatred for Judaism. The reason being, um, I truly believe that they see such a light in Judaism, um, such a lesson to the world. Um, they realize that a lot of the time their own teachings are actually have been plagiarized from the Torah and the Talmud. And, you know, our, our history somewhat became their history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because we are, we are the source of what they deem to be sacred in their own twisted way, because they have kind of twisted it and turned it into something that it wasn't meant to be. Um, they want to see the, they want to see us gone for it. We're holding a mirror to them that threaten them, um, you know, in, in the, in the deepest part of their identity. Um, the, the hatred is almost irrational, I would say, because, you know, I, I tried to explain to them, I said that, you know, the Jewish community is a tiny, tiny, um, you know, percentage of the world population. Why are you so, you know, focused on, on annihilating, you know, a few million people when you have 1.3, 1.2 billion of mm-hmm. people following you? Like, why is it about the Jews that bothers you so much? Um, and I think it's tied up to this idea that their Messiah, um, you know, will come when all the Jews are annihilated. 
And so they end, you know, the vision that they have, you know, for, for the end of time and, you know, for their freedom, you know, to be saved, their salvation is tied to our demise. And this is something that it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, so it, this is something that they are lobbying for, petitioning for, you know, preaching for and living for and dying for. Yeah. Um, and also, which I think is quite interesting, um, as much as Judaism is actually putting the emphasis on life and, you know, the necessity to protect life, whatever the cost, um, they put the emphasis on martyrdom. Oh, yeah. This idea that life means nothing but death is right. somewhat glorious. Oh, it's quite cool. interesting Absolutely. because I Absolutely. think they are, they are the, the very opposite of who we are. Oh. Uh, you know, not just as a, as a faith, but as a people, what we stand for as a people. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think that we're missing, the, we're missing the boat when it comes to Iran, failing to understand, you know, that yes, there's a political dimension to what is it that they want to do. They have, you know, geopolitical ambitions, but, you know, there is, there is an underlying religious drive that we fail to appreciate because we can't relate to that kind of narrative. There's a conceptual gap Mm-hmm. In that, you know, people keep thinking we can negotiate with them. We're going to try to entice them with the promises of, you know, economic realignment. It won't take because those people do not care about, you know, the well-being of, of their own people. Mm-hmm. What they care about is, you know, this, this um, ascent of, of the Mahdi um, to come and save them and lead this great war against the Jews. That's mm-hmm. what they're waiting for. And so they're playing for time. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I reached a point where I don't know how to tell people that because they think I'm absolutely insane telling me, but we don't believe in this. I said, but we, you don't have to, they do. Right. So believe that they do. That's all you need to know. Um, and I have to say, I, I think that the, the only, I would say, state official that, you know, who actually took the risk, um, you know, and, and was actually mocked uh, across social media for doing it uh, was Benjamin Netanyahu. When, when he went to the UN, um, you know, and, you know, used the cartoon thing about the, the whole, you know, nuclear bomb. I think he was trying to make a point and it was misunderstood. Um, he, he, was, he was trying to literally explain to a bunch of kids because they were not willing to listen. This is what we're facing. Did you understand that, you know, those people are not like us? They don't think like us. They don't behave like us. They don't, they don't see the future, you know, as something that should be, um, you know, good for the rest of the world. They, they see a future where, you know, death would be worshipped. Um, but people are not listening. Yeah. You have been accused of spying for Israel against Iran. Their claims are that you infiltrated Iran. Can you tell us about that, please? Uh, look, first of all, you know, the second, the second you disagree with the regime and you say anything else, the regime, by the way, you are either, you know, a CIA agent, Mossad agent, whatever. Uh, usually the, one of those two countries, which is interesting because um, they don't consider other countries. So you could, they don't care if you like, you know, spying for Spain, for example, that it doesn't compute. Um, it's always about America and Israel because those are the two, you know, devils and uh, they're absolutely petrified. Um, the other thing is that Iranians have an obsession over the Mossad um, and only because the, back way back when the Shah was, you know, was running the country. Uh, he actually reached out to Israel in terms of it's, it's, it building up his own intelligence services and Israel, you know, entertained and actually offered to train, you know, um, you know, in, in the art of intelligence, you know, um, 
SEVAC members. So that's why I think this this um, it's been a conflation of idea, and, and they think that you know anything to do with intelligence in regards to Iran is somewhat tied up to Israel. Um, and also, I think that they believe that the Jews have great superpowers, um, and that Israel is is mighty. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, six days war. I think it played up a, a lot into building this mythology of you know being untouchable. Um, and so they think that, you know, Mossad, you know, can do all sorts of things, even supernatural things, um, and that they everywhere know everything. And so, you know, evidently, any time that something happens, um, you know, and they can't explain it, you're a Mossad agent. It's as simple as that. It's, it's obviously ludicrous. Uh, I'm not. Um, but look, I think the more I say it, that I'm not, the more people's going to say, well, there you go. She's denying it. Right. Right. Uh- can you tell us about Yemen? Why is there such a humanitarian crisis there? And why aren't the other neighboring countries assisting them? It's complicated uh, in Yemen because, um, first of all, the humanitarian crisis was very much architected um, by Saudi Arabia. There's a blockade. There's a blockade on Yemen. This is not a criticism, by the way. Um, yes, people are suffering tremendously. Um mainly by the hands of the Houthis and, you know, those factions who are not interested in building peace. Um, Saudi Arabia made the mistake of believing that by blockading Yemen, it would, you know, force people's hand into rebelling against the Houthis, and it didn't work. It also banked on the idea that the Houthis would actually care, you know, for the fate of the people that they were ruling over. Mistake. They don't care. They're very Iranian in their way of thinking where, you know, they, they're quite happy, like, ruling over a cemetery, if that means that they're ruling. So, you know, this idea that they would, you know, actually bow to pressure because they want to feed their people is a ludicrous notion. They would never do that. They do not care about their, their own people's lives. Um, and you also have the, the problem of, you know, humanitarian misappropriation, which is, by the way, a theme that is running, you know, across the region. Um, if you look, for example, uh, you know, the EU just recently unfroze money that was meant for the, you know, Palestinian authorities um, on allegation, obviously, a few months ago, not last year, that some of the funds were actually, you know, going towards, you know, Hamas, for example, when, you know, funding certain activities that should not be funded ever. Um, and there's, there's a profound lack of oversight when it comes to humanitarian aid. So governments and NGOs you know, are basically signing a blank check, hoping that the money will go to the right people. And then it usually never does. Um, and, and if it does, it's a, it's a trickle. So you need to be very careful because even if 20% of the money that is earmarked, for example, for, you know, feeding, you know, Yemeni children is going to Al-Qaeda or the Houthis, you're essentially propping up terrorism. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't be doing that. It's a very tricky situation. And I understand that people you know, feel outraged and, you know, want to help, you know, uh, people there, obviously, so do I. The problem and the real question that you need to ask yourself is that this situation has been weaponized by the very group that we're trying to fight. And so the only, the only hope that we have is to actually, you know, stand behind international law and actually go by the rule of law and, and agree that we can never, ever fall prey to this wager that terrorists have had over us using our humanity and our democratic values to try to, you know, um, to weaponize that against us and actually empower their networks. We can't do that. 
And I know it's, it sounds terrible because it means that people are dying on the ground. I realize that. But we're not responsible for that situation. They are. And we need to hold them accountable. But you can't fight terrorism by, you know, using, you know, um, good sentiments, thinking that, yeah, you know, maybe maybe someone is going to go towards, you know, financing Al-Qaeda, for example, but I'm going to feed a child. Uh, in the, you know, in the long term, you're not helping anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to find a better way. And, mm-hmm. and a better way would be, for example, to go back to what NGO Monitor in Israel is actually trying to do, which is to advocate for the creation of a, a vetting process that would allow for the money to actually go to the real people in need of help and ensure that we are, there's, there's good analysis on the ground is to understand what is it that people need, give it to them without helping, you know, those networks that we don't want to help. Right. We have time for one more question. Um, there is a tremendous rise in uh, radicalism in the Middle East, and it's affecting the entire world. In your opinion, how can that be resisted? We need to get rid of Iran regime. Simple. I mean, they are literally propping up, um, I would say, 90% of terrorism around the world. Uh, you know, Hezbollah, Hamas, you know, the Houthis, name it, Iran is behind it. Um, we need to get rid of them. We need to isolate them as much as possible. Um, I'm not talking about military strike. I'm talking about systematic cutting off of all the, you know, the, the terror networks. And Western capitals need to stop, need to stop, you know, thinking that Iran and the regime are actually, you know, partners in, in peace building. They are not. They need, they need to, to, to be completely isolated and not spoken to ever. Those people deserve to be sent to the ICC. They are fascists, they are war criminals, and they have committed crimes against humanity. We should not be talking to them because we are engaging with terror. And I'm sorry, but I would call back, I would tell them to send back all their diplomats. I would not talk to that regime. Catherine, thank you for joining us today. You do incredible work. Thank Thank you. Thank you to Vinus and to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.